This morning's gospel is a doozy. It really should have a warning label on it. Caution. Centuries of bad theology ahead. Resist the temptation to apply these words to your current culture and context without study. Seriously, these words and this scripture have been used to do a lot of harm throughout the years. It's filled with landmines of possible shame-inducing and manipulative misinterpretations. So before we do anything else with this scripture, instead of just ignoring, ignoring it, you know, y'all, it would have been so much fun to write a sermon about praying at all times. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been better today? Oh man, I would have loved that. But instead, we're just going to deal with this head on, and first we have to unpack several things about this scripture that should come with a warning label. First, Jesus was not, in this passage, speaking about the hell that was originally conjured up by Dante's Inferno. Remember Dante? He was a poet from the 14th century. His tome, Divine Comedy, starts with a journey through an imaginary hell place. And this, this sort of remember all, like, all the levels of hell and all the pictures of all of those things, you know, this, this, is, this fiction, not biblical evidence, is where most of the contemporary thought about hell being a place of eternal torment comes from. Not the Bible. Jesus um, was not speaking about that imaginary place that was written about hundreds of years after he died. Jews actually don't believe in hell. Jews do believe in natural consequences and life after death um, and, in, and, and, and all, of, all of those things that, that, that we believe in as well, of just continuing to, to live in God's life. But this mythology of suffering and punishment is not in Jewish theology although it has been adopted by many, many Christian churches. Jesus, in this text, that uses the word Gehenna, and that is what is translated into hell. And Gehenna um, is not a place in the magma of the earth's core where demons torment those who do not live in an exemplary life. Gehenna was an actual place in Jerusalem. So everyone who heard the words that he was talking about at that time when he said Gehenna, which is translated as hell in our English um, version, they knew he was talking about a specific place that was not far from them. And it was a place where they took the garbage to be burned. It was a place that um, had been a place, a site of child um, sacrifice. So they felt the only good thing to use that real estate for was as a garbage dump. So it was the garbage dump, and they burned their garbage there at Gehenna, which is what is translated into hell into our text. So the fiery furnace language makes a little more sense. Jesus used this harsh language to get the disciples to listen up. But he was not threatening them with an eternity and suffering in a place that was made up by a poet hundreds of years in the future. Instead, his language was threatening that they would be worthless for the good news if they continued to thwart the Spirit. That their lives would end up being garbage rather than being good and used for God's love if they did not change their ways. So as we delve further into this text, because, oh my goodness, it's full of so much stuff, 
not cutting off their body parts, literally, because in the first century, hands and feet were symbolic of people's actions. When Jesus talks about, I want you to be my hands and feet and all those things, it's talking about, I want you to live in my love. I want your actions to reflect who I am. So if your hands and feet, if what you're doing, if where you're going, if the kinds of activities that you're, that you're engaged in are causing you to sin, it's not cut them off literally, it's stop. Stop engaging in those activities. Use your hands and feet, your life, your ability to move forward, and take yourself into the holy, into service, into love of others. In like manner, the eyes were considered windows to the soul and heart. So there was a sense that if you were allowing good things to come in and out of your heart and soul, that you should continue to do that. And if you were not, and if you were allowing sin to fester in your life and heart, then you should stop it and move forward to cut those things off. So literally people, y'all, throughout, throughout history have actually cut off their own hands. They've actually gouged out their own eyes. They've done this because of this scripture. There has, there has like I said, the caution, the caution note should be at the beginning of this. But all these culturally specific metaphors have through the centuries caused so much harm, so much bad theology, so much guilt, and so much shame They were actually meant to defend the Spirit's work in the midst of the community. Jesus said these really intense things to try to protect the future of the kingdom of God and to protect the Spirit's ability to move and have God's way in the community. Our Old Testament story speaks to the same exact conundrum. Moses gathering most, many of the most respected men in the community in response to the grumbling and complaining of the people of Israel. The people of Israel were sick of walking around the desert. They were sick of the manna that came down like clockwork every morning, day in, day out, the same thing. As the text said, we're sick of looking at this manna, let alone eating it. So the people of Israel did what all humans do when things start to get bad or boring. They began to dream about the good old days. They fantasized about the food they used to eat, the melons and leeks and cucumbers, and the comfort of their former lives, albeit the comfort of the confines of slavery. Instead of addressing these issues in the midst of the people, Moses and some of the respected men gathered in private to ask for a gift of God's prophecy. And they did prophesy, but only in the context of their closed group. And the, script, and the, text, the text says they did not do it again. So they did it while they were alone. Meanwhile, in the camp, two men, Eldad and Medad, prophesied in the middle of the community outside of the organized and controlled environment and within earshot of everyone. Old ladies, little kids, everyone in between, speaking truth and hope and love straight to the hearts of the people without rules. This made many of the leaders frustrated and they complained to Moses about those nobodies who shared the blessings that they had enjoyed by themselves, 
with everyone. But Moses responded, Would that all of God's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put the Spirit upon them. In like manner, our gospel shows the disciples frustrated by this unnamed nobody from nowhere casting out demons in the name of Jesus. This nobody from nowhere was slinging hope and healing in the community like it was free. And the disciples were ego-bruised by the fact that the Spirit of God did not respect the confines of their own hierarchy. This was the sentiment that Jesus spoke so harshly against. This is the evil that Jesus confronted with this really harsh, harsh language of garbage dumps, of cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes. This is what Jesus got so fired up, if you will, about. The squandering of the good news. Standing in the way of people getting their healing. The ability of the Spirit of God to move freely in the streets. Jesus said this control thwarts the good news of freedom, especially to the little ones. It stands in the way of people who are desperate to hear and desperately need God's healing touch. And little ones in the first century, as you can imagine, like all the other metaphors in our text, are not what we would imagine that would be. We would just imagine it'd be the kids, right? But in that context, little ones were anyone who had no voice because it had been taken from them. So in both the Old and New Testament, we see examples of the people of God trying to control and set boundaries around who would get to move in the power of the love of Jesus. And when it does not seem to fit their fancy, begin instead to long for the good old days, when things were more seemly, more successful, and more, well, not now. It's one of the favorite pastimes of humanity to remember the good old days, isn't it? We love to get together with our old friends and talk about old stories. We love to talk about stories about when our kids were little. It's super fun, and there's nothing wrong with it. But sometimes when the present seems especially frustrating and troublesome, we begin to idealize the past in a way that can corrupt our present and threaten our future. If our longing for the good old days disallows the spirit to move in new places and in new people and in a new way and move us out to places where we have to practice courage, we might as well go out with the trash. Our faith will be nothing more but rearview mirrors and complaints, and our hearts will not be open for the presence in this present of God. I grew up in the church, so I know very well the good old days. I know the good old days when the Sunday school classrooms were packed and everybody dressed real nice for church, and all the women wore skirts on Sunday morning. And I remember when the staff was five deep with full-time pastors, head pastor, music minister, missional pastor, youth pastor, children's pastor, all full-time with benefits. I remember that. 
I know the good old days, and we had to move from the sanctuary to the gymnasium to fit us all together and still had to go to two services. We called it the sanctimasium. I know those good old days. I also know the good old days as a time when one of our full-time pastors raped dozens of young women in the church, and the rest of the staff covered it up for years. I know that there still hasn't been a public declaration of apology or reconciliation in that place. I know the good old days when women weren't even considered for a head pastor position. They could be the children's pastor, though. <clears throat> Shape the future and all that. I know the good old days when my gay dear friend felt he couldn't darken the door of the church anymore, the same place where we both sat side by side in Sunday school and learned about Jesus and how much he loved us. I know the good old days. The good old days were just as broken as today, just in different ways. And we can't go back, and for good reason. So instead, we must choose to get out of the way of the Spirit and watch as God's love flows. We can't look back and idealize an imperfect past. We get to be the transformed community of God now. There's still so many who need to hear the good news. So many who are waiting for healing. So many who could use even just a cup of cool water in the name of God's love. Church, the world is waiting for us to stop thinking about the past and worrying about the future and going forward in the flow of God's love. The world is waiting for us to have the courage to destroy and disassemble any institution that squanders the Holy Spirit, even if it goes by the name of the good old days, even if it means we have to take out of power those who've had it for far too long. My siblings in Christ, we have been set free. We don't have to have the threat of the garbage dump over our heads. We do not have to thwart the Spirit. We can use our mouths and lives to proclaim goodness, healing, and love. The fear of disrupting institutions and family structures and reputations can be thrown away in the fiery trash heap like so much garbage. And we can move forward in the strength and truth of the risen Christ. We can leave guilt and shame behind and watch as God transforms us to live in service to God and neighbor. This is the kingdom of God. Not the trash heap, not the good old days, but our bright present in God's presence. Amen. Let's stand and sing together in thee is gladness. It's hymn number 867.